Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. I finished my last podcast talking about Bitcoin, and so I'm going to begin today's podcast also talking about Bitcoin. And, you know, by the way, you know, I do get a lot of people on my social media, on my Twitter uh, page, uh, basically calling me out, saying, hey, why do I talk about uh, Bitcoin so much? Why do I tweet about Bitcoin if, you know, I'm not interested in it, right? So I must secretly like Bitcoin, and that's the real reason that I, I'm tweeting about it so much or commenting on it. And that has nothing to do with it. Maybe that's what people want to believe. That's wishful thinking that I that I secretly uh, really like Bitcoin and I'm just trying to talk it down so I could buy more of it. No, I mean, the reason I talk about it, even though I don't buy it, is because it is a, a topic that really overlaps a lot of what I'm saying because I'm talking about the problems in the fiat monetary system. Well, a lot of people in the crypto space and Bitcoin, they also talk about the problems with the fiat monetary system. Some of them don't even understand really what fiat money is, but they, they've learned the word because they own Bitcoin. Uh, but it is an alternative to central banking, right? And a lot of people who might, let's say, buy into this, who should be buying gold or silver or something like that instead end up buying Bitcoin. So I want to try to make sure I put my perspective out there to try to prevent people from making mistakes, giving them the benefit of, of my experience and my understanding of what is money and what is not money and my understanding and experience when it comes to investment fads and bubbles and uh, pyramids and Ponzi's and all the various things uh, that I see wrong with Bitcoin. Uh, so it certainly is a topic that I need to address. And of course, you know, they're marketing it now as, hey, dump gold, right? Buy, buy Bitcoin. Instead, you have uh, uh, Grayscale with this huge ad campaign telling people they should get rid of gold, right? And if I'm advocating that people buy gold, then clearly I want to address a major campaign that's designed to convince people to sell the gold that I'm suggesting that they buy. And, uh, you know, you have these Pied Pipers leading people uh, down a primrose path, and I want to do the best that I can to make sure that people get off of that path. But anyway, the reason I want to talk about Bitcoin again is because we had another major leg down in uh, all cryptocurrencies, not just Bitcoin, uh, but Bitcoin in particular. When I did my last podcast, Bitcoin was around $8,100 per coin. And as I'm recording this one, it's around $7,100 per coin. So it's dropped $1,000, although it dropped more than that. The lowest it hit was around $6,600. Uh, so a pretty violent drop, and it happened within a couple of days after I recorded my last podcast talking about the fact that I still thought that head and shoulders top was in play in, in Bitcoin. And I put the neckline down around 7,300 and we ended up crashing below it. And we've been holding below it now. As I said, we're just above 7,100. And we've been spending a lot of time just around the 7,000 area. I mean, we get a little bit below and then we get a little bit above, but we've been holding on uh, to a trading range just around the 7,000 uh, handle. And I think to me, the technicals look even worse now than they did before. In fact, what is really um, you know spectacular about this move is if you remember when I first started talking about this potential head and shoulders top in Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin was around 
oh, maybe 8,000 or about the same level it was. And I was saying, you know, maybe the neckline was down around 7,500 or somewhere in there. And we actually got down to it or slightly below it. And then we had this crazy like 10 hour rally, this huge rally where Bitcoin went from like 7,300 all the way up to 10,350, right? This was this 40% move in like 12 hours or something crazy like that. And it got everybody excited in the Bitcoin community. Oh my God, gold can't do something like that. This is the greatest investment ever. Look how fast you can make your money. And what was I saying right away? In fact, I did this interview off the chain with Anthony Pompliani, uh, better known as Pomp. And I was actually doing my interview. He recorded it and we were recording it just as this pump was going on. And he was saying, oh, look, look at how much Bitcoin was going up. I said, well, you better make sure and sell some of yours because this has all the hallmarks of a classic pump and dump. Somebody came in there or somebody's when uh, the market looked very weak and they just ran the price up. And why do they do that, right? Why do pumpers run up the price? Because they know that if they create a lot of FOMO, right, fear of missing out, that they're going to get a lot of momentum money running in, getting excited, and now they can create demand that they can sell into. And what happened is the market in just about four weeks, we lost not only 100% of that pump gain, but we are now below Uh, the lowest point before the pump even started. So that entire 40% one-day pump was eviscerated, right? We're now lower than the market was before the pump began, which is more evidence that that's exactly what it was. Because if that was real buying, if there really was a surge, normally if you get real buying moving into a market and you get a 40% up move, you're going to sustain most of that move. I mean, maybe you have a 50% pullback, but a lot of times you don't even have a pullback of any substance because real money has moved in. What happened here is as soon as you had that big move up, the real money started to sell. It was the suckers that were coming in. And so, you know, we basically uh, reversed that entire gain. And now we've crashed through the neckline of the head and shoulders top, which the way you measure a head and shoulders, this projects a move down to about 1,000 for Bitcoin. Now, that's major. Now, of course, I think Bitcoin's going to 1,000 eventually anyway. In fact, it's going a lot lower than 1,000. But simply as a technician, if you look at it, now I know some technicians can argue and say, hey, Peter, hey, look, it's not technically a classic head and shoulders, but I think it has enough of the pattern to me that you know you have to acknowledge that this is potentially what it is. And of course, not all head and shoulders work out. They don't always fulfill their potential, right? Because if that was the case, it'd be really easy to make a bunch of money. Just find a head and shoulders top and bet the house, right? So they don't always work out. Uh, So maybe it won't do that right away. But again, doesn't even matter because eventually we're going a lot lower. But there's been a lot of reporting in the crypto community about my head and shoulders call and about my call in general for Bitcoin going down. I I get a kick out of it when I read how biased the coverage is. Because, of course, the only publications, online, you know, publications or websites that cover Bitcoin are from a pro-Bitcoin and pro-crypto perspective. I mean, nobody really has an incentive to come out there and launch, you know, a website that writes negative articles on Bitcoin or crypto, right? All of the incentive is to pump it up, right? Because you own it and you want to get it to go up. And, you know, they keep bringing, you know, or quoting these so-called crypto heavyweights. And they all, they're they always bullish. No matter what happens, we're going to 50,000, we're going to 100,000, we're going to 250,000, we're going to a million, right? They've been singing this song for over two years. And, you know, we're going in the other direction, right? A lot of these guys forget that Bitcoin's high was two years ago and we're about 65% below that high now. Uh, So we're two years into a bear market and we got a long way to go. Yet these so-called crypto heavyweights, they come out with a $50,000, $100,000 forecast and, you know, fine. Nobody says anything. Nobody criticizes them and says, hey, these guys have a vested interest in in Bitcoin. Their entire lives revolve around a Bitcoin business. And so they're obviously, their judgment is clouded. They never mention that. And they never mention the fact that they've been wrong for the past couple of years because Bitcoin has not been going up. It's been, been going down. But they say that I'm wrong. Like one article in particular I put on my Facebook page said that Peter Schiff 
has gotten everything wrong about Bitcoin. He's never gotten anything right. So why should we pay attention to anything he says? But meanwhile, I just got one thing right. I got the pump and dump right. I said that that rally was going to fail and that we were going to get a reversal. And that happened. So the article that says that I never got anything right overlooks what I just got right just a few days before the article was written that I never got anything right. Now, of course, they like to go back to the beginning and say, hey, Peter Schiff never believed in Bitcoin. He was against Bitcoin from the start. And that's true. I was against it for the same reason I'm against it now. My reasons for not believing that it was going to work as money, that it wasn't going to satisfy the demands that the promoters were, were, were promising, none of that has changed. But I acknowledge, yes, the market went up a lot. Right? I can't disagree with that. But I never said that the price couldn't go up. I just said that it wouldn't work as money and it wouldn't work uh, as a store of value or a media of exchange. And it's not working as money. It's not working as a media of exchange. I got that part right. And I said initially, I said, what's going to stop other cryptocurrencies from being created? And, you know, when I first heard about Bitcoin, it was the only one. And now there's, you know, close to 5,000 cryptocurrencies. Go to CoinMarketCap. There's 4,860 cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, right? So, I mean, the inflation in the crypto space has been enormous, but the price went up. Big deal. In fact, when the price was like 5,000, I was actually on CNBC and I said, well, I guess I think you can go to 20,000. I mean, 20,000 makes as much sense as 5,000. That was the number I picked, you know, out of my hat to say, I think we can go to 20,000. And it, a few weeks later, we hit 20,000. Right. So I guess I got that right. And then when it hit 20,000, right around that time, I was also on television and on my podcast saying, this is it. I think this is the speculative blow off top. I don't think it's going much higher. I think everything I've seen, all this crazy, wild speculation to me looks like a blow off top. And the fact that it happened in conjunction with the launching of the futures, uh, Bitcoin futures. So I'm on record at the time as saying, hey, I think this is the peak. This looks like a blow off top to me. And so far, I'm right. Over the last two years, Bitcoin has not made a new high. Now, all the other people who all these Bitcoin websites love to tout their forecasts of 50,000, a million, whatever, these guys have been nothing but wrong for the past two years. Back when Bitcoin was 20,000, they were saying it's going to 50, it's going to 100, right? They were dead wrong, yet they're never taken to task by any of the uh the guys that, that, that publish these uh, stories uh, that make fun of me because they claim I got it wrong for the beginning. I didn't buy it. That's true. Right? I missed out on the opportunity to make a bunch of money off of other people's greed and, and, and ignorance. I didn't do that. And there are a lot of people who have told me that they listen to my podcast. They listen to me talk about why I didn't think Bitcoin was going to work as money, but they bought it anyway as a speculation. And they made money because most of the people who bought Bitcoin because of listening to me, have got out and they took their profits because they knew they were just gambling. They just wanted to roll the dice because they saw the money coming into it and they wanted to gamble on it. And I told people, even back then, I said, look, you know, you could buy it because it could go up. You could gamble. But I didn't want to encourage anybody to gamble. I don't want to do that. That's not what my role is. Now, it's probably true that there are people, certainly there are people who would have bought Bitcoin. Had I come out early on and said, this is great. I think this is going to work. This is the new gold. A lot of people would have bought it. And some of those, you know, those people obviously would have made money had they bought it early. But I wasn't going to say that because I didn't believe that. And so I'm not going to tell people to do something if I don't believe it's going to work. And I still don't believe it's going to work. And a lot of these guys now who are, again, trying to talk about how I always get everything wrong, they're saying, well, you know, look at Bitcoin has outperformed gold by how, you know, how much over the last 10 years. I mean, gold has lost, you know, 99.9999, whatever percent of its value priced in gold. Gold's been a disaster priced in Bitcoin. All this is true. But you know what? If Bitcoin goes from 7,100 all the way down to 100, right? Bitcoin goes down to 100. All that is true. Bitcoin still would have outperformed gold. If Bitcoin is at 100 in a couple of years, even if gold is at 5,000, Bitcoin still beat gold. Is that going to matter? Is that going to matter to anybody? How many people are still going to have a gain when Bitcoin is at 100, right? So all this is nonsense. It doesn't matter about how high Bitcoin went 
in the past. In fact, if anything, if these people had you know some more brains and less greed, they would look at how much Bitcoin has already gone up and realize that the party's over. The money has already been made. Who do they think is dumping into these pumps? Right, the people that got in at much lower prices earlier on. Why are they cashing out? Because they want real money, right? They don't believe this pie in the sky nonsense. They're not the hodlers, right? They're 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 eating the lunch of the holders, right? These guys are like, uh, you know, the frogs that are being boiled slowly in a pot of oil. You know, all of this uh, positive hype that comes out every day, this pie in the sky nonsense, is designed to keep the hodlers on board. Uh, so that other people can get out because you can't sell unless you have a buyer. And so, you know, we have all these articles, uh, you know, coming out. And it's funny because, you know, you have a lot of these young kids, right, the millennials. You know, they like to make fun of me. They call me boomer, right, because I am a baby boomer. And, you know, technically I was born. I'm one of the last years. The baby boom ended in 1964, and I was born in 1963. So I am one of the youngest of the baby boom generation. But supposedly, because I am a baby boomer, I don't know as much as the millennials, right? Because the millennials are so much smarter than the baby boom, right? Because they get it, right? They're new, they're hip, they understand technology. You know, because I, I initially, after we broke down, or before we even broke down through the neckline of the head and shoulders top, I decided to tweet out a, a photograph, an image of this head and shoulders so people could actually see what I was talking about. And I put the lines on there. And of course I had it on my computer and it just seemed like really easy. I took a photograph of it with my cell phone because I was, you know, I used, I tweeted it off my cell phone. And of course, the minute I do that, everybody is jumping on me. Ah, what an idiot. Look at this guy. Doesn't even know how to take a screenshot. You know, instead of looking at the substance of what I'm trying to say, and they're saying, see, this just proves he doesn't get it. He doesn't get technology, and so he doesn't get Bitcoin. In fact, there was some, you know, my, my screen was dirty. Uh, so then I quickly, look, I did it again. I did the screenshot. I will admit that I didn't remember how to do it. I Googled, take a screenshot, very easy. I had it up there very quickly. And, you know, the picture didn't look any better uh, you know, as far as uh, if you're a long Bitcoin. It was a bearish-looking chart, and it got even more bearish uh, after the break, you know, after I showed uh, the, the chart, but these guys are so arrogant, these young kids, and they think, ah, you see, because I don't, I didn't know how to do that, right, uh, that I don't understand Bitcoin. See, the problem is they don't get what they don't understand. They don't understand money. Uh, they don't understand economics. They just think they're so smart because they got lucky, right? That's what a lot of people are confusing. There's an old adage on Wall Street, don't confuse uh, brains with a bull market. Right. And there are a lot of people probably who think they're smart because they're in this market. Right. And of course, the stock markets today, I didn't even mention this, but they all hit record highs. Now, even the Russell, uh, uh, you know, 2000 hitting record highs, S&P, Dow, everything hitting record highs. Right. Of course, as the economy is weakening and the prospects are getting worse, uh, I didn't realize, uh, I guess maybe I underestimated the impact that QE4 was going to have on this market. I mean, I knew QE4 was coming. Right. I mean, I was 100 percent sure of that I knew the Fed was going to cut rates and they've been doing that. I just kind of underestimated how much upward pressure it was going to put on the U.S. stock market. Because I actually thought that the dollar would be falling uh, as a result of the Fed surprising everybody by doing exactly what I expected, which was cutting rates and going back to QE. Well, they did exactly what I expected, except the dollar hasn't gone down. Uh, but I just think I want to add yet the dollar hasn't gone down yet. Because it is going to go down, and when it falls, it's going to drop like a stone. And I don't think that's going to be a positive for the U.S. stock market or the U.S. bond market. And we're going to see a much bigger move up in uh, in the price of gold. So a lot of people that are making money in the U.S. stock market, they think they're smart. They're not. They're lucky. If they were smart, they wouldn't be in the stock market. Or if they're in it, they're simply in it as a momentum trader, thinking that, look, I know this is BS, but, hey, there's a bunch of idiots buying stocks, so I'm going to buy stocks now so I can sell to these idiots, and I'm going to get out the door before they realize uh, the market has turned. Now, maybe there are some people that are smart enough to do that, but most likely there's not too many of those people. But the same mistake happens even on a bigger scale in Bitcoin. People bought a little bit of Bitcoin early on, and now they think they're geniuses. They actually got lucky. right? Maybe it was a smart gamble, but a lot of people don't know it was a gamble. In fact, even a lot of people that put some money in Bitcoin early on, 
right, when it was really cheap, at least relative to where it is now, when the, when the price got really high, when it got to five, ten thousand, fifteen thousand, they added, they bought more. In fact, a lot of people who put small amounts of money in early on put much larger sums of money later on. So they could already be down. And if they're not, they're going to be down as the air continues to come out of this bubble. But right now, they're still very arrogant because I missed out on profiting uh, from this big run-up in Bitcoin. That's fine because I'm not going to lose any money uh, when Bitcoin collapses. And a lot of people are going to go down with this ship, right? They're never going to get out, right? Uh, because they think they're so smart for not selling. And they always want to go back to what happened in the past. See, the people that panicked and got out at 100 or 500 or 1,000 or whatever, they got scared. And look, they missed out on all these profits. Well, pretty soon, the people that got out at 1,000 are going to look a lot smarter than the people who stayed in. Well, let me go from uh, a fiat cryptocurrency to actual uh, fiat currency. And Neo Cash Carry. And if you don't know who Neo Cash Carry is, he is the head of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis. And he is probably the most dovish uh, of the central bankers, which is really saying a lot uh, considering his competition. In fact, he's got the perfect name, right, for a real dovish a Fed chairman, right? Cash carry, right? Perfect name. In fact, if he ever became Fed chairman, let's say in a Sanders administration, right? Uh, Neil Cash Carry uh, was the chairman of the Fed, right? You would need a wheelbarrow to carry around all that cash uh, that would be created by Neil Cash Carry. But the reason I want to talk about Mr. Cash Carry today is because he made some comments I thought were very ironic uh, about wealth inequality. And he basically, in his speech, he said, look, this is normally the purview of uh, fiscal policy, right? The, the government should be concerned uh, with wealth inequality, but maybe in the future, the Fed, maybe monetary policy could be an instrument to try to address the wealth inequality, which I really thought was rich uh, because one of the reasons that we have a widening gap of wealth inequality is because of the Fed. Because of the policies that Neil Kashkari uh, advocates. I mean, what creating inflation does, debasing the money, right, is a transfer of wealth uh, from savers to debtors. Right? And I'm not talking about debtors that like have credit card debt and student loans. I'm talking about people who have levered up to buy real assets. Those kind of debtors, right? Not the typical American consumer who has debt because he bought consumer goods, because the consumer goods depreciate down to zero, right? But when you buy an asset and you incur debt, right, inflation makes you rich because it wipes out the value of the money you borrowed, and now you're left with the real asset that you purchased. But who gets wiped out? The savers. Who are the savers? The average guy who's got, you know, uh, a 401k or a pension, he's got an annuity, he's got cash value in a life insurance, he's got bonds, right? He's got some savings, he's getting wiped out, right? And so the people who have leveraged up to buy assets, which are generally richer people, have gotten richer, and the people who haven't done that, who aren't as sophisticated, don't have the incomes or the assets to be able to do that, you know, they're just trying to save their money, well, well, they're getting eviscerated. But also, what the Fed's policy does is it transfers wealth from wage earners to speculators, right? Because the wage earners are seeing the value of their incomes, their wages, right, being diminished because of the monetary policy of the Fed. The inflation is, you know, destroying the value of their labor income. Uh, but it is helping to increase the value of the income that speculators get, uh, through financial leverage and other types of, you know, paper pushing and, and engineering, right? So they're making a, the rich richer who can afford to speculate and the middle class who can't, who are just trying to collect a paycheck and, you know, clocking in at a job, uh, the value of their hard work <clears throat> is going down because the cost of living is going up. But as much as the Fed wants to pretend that the cost of living is not going up, it is. And it's going up faster than most people's wages. And so that is helping to drive the income inequality. And of course, the cheap money that the Fed um, you know, puts out there also makes it easier for consumers to, to make a bad choice to borrow 
to buy consumer goods. I talked about this on my last podcast about this guy who purchased four new cars in two years. Like, if it wasn't for the Fed, he'd still be driving his used car, and he would be better off had he done that. But because of the Fed, he's able to make foolish decisions that help keep him poorer. Because when you borrow money to buy a car, that makes you poorer. You've bought a depreciating asset, and now you're paying interest, and you've incurred liability. You incur debt. You know, a point that I meant to make on my last podcast, back before the Fed screwed up uh, money, right, when you actually got paid a decent amount of interest on your savings, right, when people saved up to buy a new car, when they didn't just buy a new car and borrow the money, right, when they saved their money to buy a new car, right, they drove a used car, right, until they can afford to buy a nice new car, and so they would save their money. But when you save up to buy something, it reduces the cost of what you're buying because you earn interest on the money while you're saving it. And under a normal free market that reduces prices, right, not only are you earning interest on your savings, but prices are coming down. And so if it takes a few years to save up to buy something, whether it's a car or anything else, it's not only cheaper because you have the interest that you can now use on your savings to help offset the purchase, but the prices come down because the economy has become more efficient and costs have, have come down. But when you go out and take on debt to buy a car, the car costs a lot more money because not only do you have to pay the cost of the car, but you have to pay the interest on the money you borrowed to buy the car. So the actual cost of that purchase is much higher. So by encouraging consumers to take on debt, through cheap money, Neil Kashkari and his pals are helping to undermine the net worths of average Americans. And so when you're looking about wealth inequality, that's what you're comparing. You're comparing financial net worths, right? So if you have a bunch of people taking on a bunch of debt, that is loading up the liability side of their balance sheet, and they don't have any real assets. Uh, so I think it's really ridiculous for the Fed. I mean, this is about the pot calling the kettle black. The Fed saying they're going to do something about income inequality when they're the reasons that we have more in- income inequality than would normally be the case. Now, of course, the normal level of income inequality is a positive thing. I mean, you never want income equality. How are you going to get income equality in a socialist country where everybody is broke But even then, you don't have income equality because you have some rich people that work for the government, that have connections to the government, and they get rich by exploiting everybody else. You want to have a society where you have income inequality because you want to reward success. You want people who come up with a better mousetrap, right, who build a better mousetrap, who cure diseases, who come up with solutions to our problems, who make our lives better by inventing and innovating. Right? who create businesses, who provide employment opportunities for other people. We want these people to get rich, right? I mean, I said, do you want somebody to cure cancer? You better hope somebody gets rich curing cancer because the only way someone's going to cure cancer is if they can get rich doing it. And are you going to resent the fact if you end up getting cancer and there's a cure, are you going to resent the fact that the guy that invented that cure is a billionaire? Of course not. Because now you're not going to die, right? You're going to get to live longer or your loved one is going to get to live longer. But again, apart from curing cancer, there's all kinds of small things uh, that that people take for granted. You know, I think it's, you know, kind of ridiculous, too. My brother wrote this commentary, um, you know, about the, the you know, because he was watching or the, the Yale-Harvard uh, rivalry football game, uh, you know, we're at the Yale Bowl which was a fantastic uh, game, a fantastic finish. Uh, probably, they say, one, maybe the best uh, in the history of that rivalry, which is probably the oldest rivalry there is in, in, in football. But it was interrupted by some protesters, right, who were protesting uh, global warming, right? And they, oh, this is terrible. You know, you need to, uh, you know, do something. You know, we're destroying the planet. We've only got 12 years, right? And, you know, these guys are there. They're, they want to get arrested. But meanwhile, they don't give a damn about the fact that they're interrupting this game, uh, an important game for all the people on the field. I mean, most of the people who play on Yale or Harvard, they're not going to the NFL. A lot of these seniors, this is their last uh, game, and they've been playing football since they were little kids in Pee Wee League. You know, let them, let them have their game. Let them have their moment. 
Don't screw it up. What about all the people in the stands who came to see a football game? Not a political protest, right? See, these guys don't give a damn, right, about the sacrifices they want to impose on other people because they're holier than now. Oh, no, we're, we're saving the planet. But, you know, the thing about all these young millennials, again, just like the same people who, you know, make fun of me because I don't get Bitcoin, right? They're also making fun of us, right? Because we don't get that the planet's about to collapse. This is the worst thing since the ice age and, you know, we're all going to die, right? They, they all want us to go for this Green New Deal or something like that. No more hydrocarbons. And, you know, but they try to sell this as if it's going to be like a booming economy, right? They, they, they don't even understand how, how things would be, right? If we actually did uh, what these, you know, kids want us to do, it wouldn't be this great uh, thing, right? I mean, the socialists are trying to use the, the environmental or the global warming as a way to sugarcoat and sell socialism. Hey, you know, we have this global emergency, so we need socialism. And what we're going to do is we're going to have all these great jobs and everybody's going to have all this money. And as we fight for the environment, we're going to have free health care. We're going to have free education. So as we save the planet, your life is going to be better. You're going to make all this extra money. Everything's going to be free. Oh, and we're going to save the planet at the same time. Right. It's the people who are ruining the planet. They're the reasons that your life is so miserable. They're the reason that you're drowning in debt. You know, you have a low paying job because at the same time, they're also destroying the planet. And we're going to do everything. If they really were going to be honest about what they're saying, what they need to say is, you know what? The people in the oil industry, they're making your life better right now. They're making they're making your life easier right? because you have energy. Right. So you, you have electricity. You you know, you can drive your car. You can fly in a plane. Right. You, you have heat. Right. You have you know, you have all these modern conveniences because we have power. And we have power because people are out there drilling for oil, right? And all these things that you think are so bad, right? This is why you're living good. Now, what they should be saying is, you know what? We don't want any of that, right? We don't, we, we don't want to live in a modern economy because that's killing the planet. So we want to live like the Amish, right? I mean, the only people who have, as far as I'm concerned, any standing to go out there and say, yep, we should abandon all of uh, these energy and we should have the Green New Deal are the Amish, you know. And you know, so go go live go live with the Amish for a few weeks and see if that's what you want, right? Is that what you want to live, right? Do you want to ride around on a horse, right? Do you want to have, you know, is that how you want? Because if we, if we went back, if we did all the things that these people want, right, this is a massive sacrifice. This is not going to be, we're not going to have free education. We're not going to have free health care. We're not going to have any of that stuff. We're going we're gonna to be spending all of our money saving the planet. You're not going to have, we're not going to have any health care at all. We're not going to have any education at all, right? What we have now, we're going to lose because we're going to sacrifice that on the altar of saving the planet. So this, if we really actually have to do this, uh, our standard of living goes way down. And of course, they're also going to say, well, you know, if we don't do this, the planet's going to be destroyed. None of this is going to happen. And, you know, are there problems? Sure. And these problems are going to be solved by uh, by future generations who have the technology. You know, I was I was uh, you know talking about it with my brother because he told me about his article. Uh, but he pointed out to me, you know, that in New York City, once upon a time in New York City, everybody was concerned about horse manure because there were a lot of horses. People were coming to Manhattan and they were bringing their horses, and people were worried about what was going to happen in the future with all the horses and all the manure. It was like going to be some huge catastrophe. And they were trying to figure out how we're going to deal with this, how we're going to prevent this overpopulation. I mean, imagine how many horses are going to be on the streets in the year 2000. Can you imagine all the shit that's going to be piling up? What are we going to do with all that horse shit in the year 2000, right? Because the people didn't realize that there weren't going to be any horses because their only frame of reference is, well, we've had horses for thousands of years. Why won't we have horses for another 100 years, another 200 years? They didn't realize that somebody was going to invent the you know combustible engine, that we were going to have horseless carriages, that we were going to have automobiles. We have far fewer horses in New York City today than we did 150 years ago. Not more. It's not a massive problem that they were worried about. I mean, tourists ride on horses. I mean, it's just a few carriages there for show, right? So this is a problem that people were wasting their time worrying about. You don't know what is going to be invented. But you know what? The technology that exists today, what we have today, we can't solve 
these problems. We are relying on fossil fuels. That's it. There is nothing else. So unless we want to see a complete implosion of our standing of living, that's what we have. And in fact, if there's even any possibility that the, the liberals can deliver on these promises of free this and free that, which they can't, the only way they have a shot at it, which they don't, is if we stick with fossil fuels, right? That, that, that's it. Because if we don't have that, we don't have anything. But anyway, you know, I, I, I drifted off on a tangent to get into this topic. I want to get back to Neil Kashkari because that's how I got here. But his, his idea is that, oh, the Fed is going to take, you know, uh, you know, help with income inequality, which, first of all, we don't want to get rid of any income inequality. And every society that has gotten rid of it has just made everybody poorer, including the poor. In fact, I watched this video. I got to put that up on my, my, my pages. It was a, a young kid. Uh, I, I, everybody should watch this. It was a great, well-done-produced video. Uh, young guy from Venezuela, born in Venezuela, uh, talking about how uh, Venezuela and how democratic socialism destroyed his country, impoverished the people that uh, were supposed to be helped. Everybody was promised free health care, free education, a better life, and the economy was eviscerated. The people who suffered the most were the poor and the middle class, which no longer exists because everybody is poor, right? And so this kid is basically saying, hey, you, you millennials, idiots, you guys want socialism. Open up your eyes. I fled socialism. It was a disaster. It has ruined every country it has infected. It is a dangerous, horrible ideology. And it's amazing. These young, again, these kids, they think they're so smart. They think they know everything. They have no idea how much they don't know. Uh, but this kid has uh, experience in living in that society. So you should try to uh, watch uh, the video. But how does Neil Kashkari think? Forgetting about the fact that the Fed created a lot of this uh, income uh, disparity. What is the Fed going to do about it? Print money? That's all they could do. They, they could print money. How does that do anything? Destroy the value of people's savings? How is that going to address income inequality? The Fed has absolutely no tools. The only thing the Fed could do to help with income inequality is to reverse everything it's been doing, right? Let interest rates go up. Let the bubble pop, right? Let stock prices come down. Let real estate prices come down. Let's have a real recession so we can have a real recovery that actually benefits uh, the middle class and the poor, not this phony bubble uh, that benefits the speculators who are, you know, getting rich off of the Fed's uh, cash cow. But of course, that's not going to happen, right? And I have no idea what cash carry thinks he's going to do uh, without fiscal policy. In fact, the only thing that he could do if he thinks is, hey, we can run bigger deficits or we can print more money to enable the government to run even bigger deficits so they can you know, give money to the poor to supposedly make them less poor. But of course, if we do that, then we're going to destroy the value of the money and the poor will be even poorer because even though they'll have more money, they'll have a lower standard of living. In fact, the kid that did this video pointed out how many times the minimum wage was raised in uh, Venezuela, but it didn't matter how much you got. And he was talking about how doctors and, and nurses were earning the same as cashiers. I mean, nobody could earn any money, so all the doctors left. And so there was no more health care for anybody, right? He promised free health care for everybody. Instead, there's no health care for anybody. That is uh, the history of socialism. It has failed every time it's been tried, and not only just failed, but it's failed miserably. It's failed spectacularly, right? The only thing that has succeeded is capitalism, freedom, right? That's why we have this high standard of living that these young kids that were protesting at the, the Yale-Harvard game, right? They're so willing to cast it aside without even realizing or even appreciating how good they have it because of, of capitalism. Changing gears just a little bit to talk about politics, you know, now Mayor Bloomberg, Michael Bloomberg, has officially now entered the race. He's uh, launching a major ad campaign. And, you know, Bloomberg, by far, hands down, no question about it, is the best candidate for the Democrats, right? So if you want to have a Democratic president, anybody that is in the current field were to become president, Bloomberg is by far the most competent, right? So, you know, if, if it's going to be a Democrat, you should want uh, Bloomberg uh, to win. Right? And I think he's probably has the best chance of beating Trump. Now, I think, I think, you know, I think other candidates can also beat Trump, but I think it's going to be very, very difficult for Trump to beat 
Bloomberg. Now, Trump pretends he wants to run against him. But, of course, that's, you know, you know, that's what you would expect him to do. If you don't want to run against somebody, then you say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, bring him on. He's he's my he's a guy I most want to run against. Right. You say that about the candidate you don't want to run against because you don't want to admit that you don't want to run against somebody because they'll use that as a rallying cry. You see, Trump's afraid of me. So make me the nominee. So Trump wants to downplay the threat from Bloomberg. But there is a real threat there uh, when it comes to Bloomberg. Now, Bloomberg has also said he's not going to take any contributions at all. Zero. He's not even going to allow people to donate to his campaign. That wasn't true uh, for Trump. I mean, Trump uh, accepted donations and, and spent money. Uh, but Bloomberg said I'm not, he's not going to take any donations. Now, Bloomberg, of course, is worth $50 billion, right? So maybe 10 times what Trump is worth. So Bloomberg can spend Trump's entire net worth on this election and not even miss the money. And of course, Bloomberg is liquid. Trump has got a lot of wealth and assets. Trump has a lot of debt. Bloomberg is cash. He's got money to burn and he's willing to do it uh, to become president. But I think it's very uh, interesting. You look at Bernie Sanders, right? He's been one of the most critical of Bloomberg's entrance into the race by saying, how dare this billionaire, right? He thinks he can buy the White House. The White House is not for sale. Bullshit, of course it's for sale, right? He just wants to buy it with other people's money. At least Bloomberg wants to buy it with his own money. But you get Sanders come out and saying, what qualifications does this billionaire have to be president, right? Uh, Hello? I mean, what qualifications does Bernie Sanders have to be president? None. I mean, what, he's been a senator? Big deal. Being a senator is BS. What do you do? You vote on stuff? You don't do shit as a senator. I mean, in what important legislation has he actually got passed? Not that I, you know, I think passing legislation is good. I think repealing legislation is good. But the way, you know, most politicians, you know, look, you know, look at their track record. Hey, these are all the bills that I've I've brought through and made laws. What has Bernie Sanders done? He hadn't done anything. I mean, I'm not sure if this guy's ever even had a job, let alone had an employee. He certainly hasn't done that. He certainly never run a business. He's got zero qualifications to be president. What qualifications does Michael Bloomberg have to be president? Well, first of all, he's a self-made billionaire. I mean, you got to give him some credit. I mean, you don't just accidentally make $50 billion. And he didn't make it, I mean, Financial engineering. I mean, he was involved in Wall Street, so he certainly benefited from the bubble in Wall Street because more people are trading and they need Bloomberg terminals. So in a way, you know, he you know, he benefited from that cheap money policy because Wall Street is are his biggest customers. But still, the guy made a tremendous amount of money, ran a huge organization, created million, you know, well, directly tens of thousands of jobs, maybe more. I don't know how many people uh, Bloomberg uh, employs uh, across his entire business line. I mean, he's in media and financial services and all the things that he's done. But certainly being a self-made billionaire, having spent your entire life working in the private sector uh, as an entrepreneur, as a businessman, I mean, that is a pretty good qualification, I think, to be president of the United States. I mean, look, that's all Donald Trump had, right? But not only is Michael Bloomberg a more successful self-made entrepreneur than Trump, and Bloomberg didn't get any money from his parents. His parents were, you know, middle class, right? I think they were school teacher and, uh, I, I, you know, I forget what the, the other occupation was, maybe a lawyer, I forget, or not even a lawyer, like a, something that makes less money than that. Um, but he was a mayor in New York City for three terms, right? Mayor. He ran the largest city in the country, right? I mean, I think being the mayor of New York, I mean, you have a more responsibility than being the governor of most states, right? You got, a, you got a lot of people living in New York City. That's a big job as far as, you know, executive experience in government, organizing and running government. So he has a lot more experience than Trump had when Trump ran because Trump had never been elected to anything. Uh, but certainly, I think being mayor of New York City for three terms is a uh, more experience that is relevant to being president of the United States than spending a lifetime as a senator where you do nothing. You just show up and vote and you go around the country, you give speeches and you write books and you, you know, that's where Sanders, that's how he became a millionaire. He used his fame that he got running uh, for office 
and he wrote a book. I mean, plus you don't even write it. You just you just you know get a deal. You get a ghostwriter. I'm sure he didn't write the book. He just put his name on it. Somebody else wrote it, and he cashed in on his fame, right? From ba- he he cashed in on the fame he achieved by bashing millionaires to become a millionaire, right? That that's Bernie Sanders' story. So for him to say what qualifications does Bloomberg have? He's better qualified than any of the other candidates by far, and he's certainly better qualified and more experienced. Uh, than uh, Bernie Sanders. Now, am I am I endorsing him? Do I think, oh, we should go out and vote for Michael Bloomberg? Look, I mean, if it was Bloomberg against Trump, look, I don't know. You know, that actually could be a tough call. Now, I'm not going to have to make it because I can't vote because I live in Puerto Rico. But yeah, I mean, Bloomberg wants higher taxes, but he's it's, it's not going to be crazy higher taxes that he wants. But look, you know, we're going through an economic crisis regardless of who's elected. The thing about having Bloomberg as opposed to one of these other Democratic idiots, you know, at the helm of the ship when, you know, we hit that the iceberg and go down is that he at least he's got a shot of maybe doing doing the right thing. These other guys have no shot at doing the right thing. I mean, he's you know, I mean, he's probably would be the best Democratic president. I mean, he'd be better, I think, than Clinton was. Certainly he'd be better than Obama was. Uh, You know, I mean, he's not Ronald Reagan. Uh, You know, would he be better than Trump? I don't know. You know, I mean. Trump, Trump has done a lot of things that have upset me, and he's done some things that I've liked. Um, so it's, it, it, it would probably be a tough call. But, you know, but my guess would be that I, I'd rather have Trump. I mean, it's all going to collapse. I think, you know, Trump, some of the people that Trump listens to, that Trump respects, know me, respect me, listen to me. So I might have an easier path. And it's not either me but some people with my Austrian perspective and my, uh, you know, economic outlook or philosophy, uh, we might have a better chance of getting Trump to try to enact some of that than a Bloomberg. Because I think Bloomberg is going to be more associated uh, with the people on the left who what I think should happen. And, and my, you know, Austrian economics is 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 not even on their radar. Right? It's nothing that they would even consider. So probably Trump over over Bloomberg. But it's not as cut and dry like Trump over Sanders or Trump over Warren. I mean, these guys would be complete disasters. Uh, and, and, you know, and they're going to try all kinds of things. The only thing that would save us would be the Supreme Court and maybe Congress if they just you know didn't want to uh, give in to this nonsense. But the problem is this coming crisis is going to be so bad. It's going to be so much worse in 2008. And you know it's all going to be blamed on capitalism. It's all going to be the left saying, we told you so. We cut taxes for the rich. We deregulated it. You know, the economy was great. You know, Trump inherited a great economy for Obama. And like everything he inherits, he squandered it with tax cuts for the rich and deregulation. And, you know... Things are going to be very tough and people are going to be demanding radical solutions. I wish the radical solutions could be free market capitalism because we haven't had that in a long time. But everybody is convinced that that's all we've had. And even the people who supposedly defend capitalism think that it needs a makeover, that it needs to be redone for the modern era. We don't need to redo capitalism. We just need capitalism. What we have to do is get all the socialism out of capitalism. That's giving it a bad name. We got to get government out of all this stuff so that market forces can get back in. And, you know, I'm going to finish up the podcast talking a little bit about voting uh, because, you know, we're talking about these politicians and voting because I kind of got into trouble we're not really into trouble, but I got a lot of uh, people uh, giving me flack. A lot of the millennials, again, the same guys that criticized me for not getting uh, Bitcoin, uh, were criticizing me over uh, a couple of tweets I put out on voting. So I read this article about a town, Brookline, that had approved a, a measure. They were asking for permission from the state to lower the voting age down to 16. Right. And, you know, that's part of the Democratic platform. Right. In addition to doing away with electoral college and making D.C. and Puerto Rico states, they want to lower the voting age down to 16, which, you know, obviously, I mean, I don't blame the Democrats for wanting 16 year olds to vote. I mean, because almost all of them are going to vote Democrats because they're only 16. What do you expect? In fact, the Democrats want 14 year olds to vote, 10 year olds, five year olds. I mean, the younger, the better. Right, because they're not old enough to know any better. Right, it's so much easier uh, to fool these guys. But I could just imagine elections where the politicians have to directly pander 
uh, to children in order to get their uh, get their votes. But, you know, so I made a tweet and I said, hey, this is a step in the wrong direction. We shouldn't be lowering the voting age. We should be increasing the voting age, which is, oh, my God, how could you want to do that? And again, I've talked about that on this podcast before, but I guess, you know, some people might not have heard that one. So I'll, I'll redress the point because it's a good one. But, you know, the voting age up until the 26th Amendment, which was what, the, the early 70s, I think when 73, after, you know, exactly when it was. Um, but they we had a constitutional amendment to basically say that you have to let 18 year olds vote. You cannot discriminate in voting. Uh, against people once they've turned 18, right? Now, that doesn't stop. That means the state, if a state wants to make a voting age 17 or 16, it can, right? There's nothing that prevents any state from having a voting age lower than 18. They just can't have a voting age higher than 18. But before that amendment was passed, the voting age was 21 pretty much everywhere. And it had been 21 probably, you know, since the beginning. That was kind of the age of majority. That's when uh, society decided that children become adults. They became adults at 21. And what happened in the 1970s is because of the draft, right? We were drafting kids at 18 and they were saying, hey, if we're old enough to fight, we're old enough to vote. And, uh, you know, this is an example of two wrongs not making a right. Now, I am against the draft. I, I, I think the draft is wrong. And I, so I don't think anybody should have been drafted. I think that if the government can't make its case, if it can't sell itself right on its cause and have young people volunteer, then, it, you know, we shouldn't have a war. Right. If people aren't willing to voluntarily join the service. Well, then that means that, you know, let's not have a war, right? Don't just, you know, take people and force them to fight against their will. Uh, you know, they'll fight if the cause is just. And if you're, if the cause is not just, like Vietnam, nobody wanted to go to Vietnam to fight. And I don't blame anybody who didn't want to go. There was no reason for us to be there. But one of the other bad things that came out of Vietnam, other than Vietnam itself and all the people who had to die for nothing, uh, was the fact that we lowered the voting age down to 18 because they were saying, well, if you're old enough to fight, you're old enough to vote. No, that makes as much sense as saying if you're too old, old to fight, you're too old to vote. Right. So if you can't if you're if you can't be drafted, then you shouldn't be able to fight. Look, fighting and voting are different. 18-year-olds have physically developed to the point where, yes, they can go into army. They're strong. They're, they're fast. They, they can fight. That doesn't mean that they've mentally developed to the point where we think that they should vote. They're different tasks at hand. So just because you can fight at 18 doesn't mean that you should be able to vote at 18. But in any event, we lowered the voting age down to 18 and everything else. I mean, basically, there were a lot of protections that young people had up until the age of 21, but we pretty much lowered the, the age of adulthood uh, down to 18 at that time. So 18-year-olds are full citizens. They're allowed to vote, and they can do pretty much everything else, except now, you know, they got states where you can't drink until you're 21. Well, wait a minute. I mean, you're old enough to, to vote, to decide who's going to be president. You're old enough to decide who should be in Congress or who should be your mayor, but you're not old enough to decide if you want to have a drink or not. That doesn't make any sense. Hey, if you're old enough to fight, if you're old enough to vote, why aren't you old enough to drink? Right. What about that? But, you know, we raised the drinking age up to 21. Uh, but now, you know, this town and the Democrats want to lower the voting age down to 16. Now, I mean, why should we let 16 year olds vote? I mean, there are a lot of things that we don't let minors do, right? They can't buy drinks, even when they're, they can't buy cigarettes, right? When they're under, when you're under 18, you can't consent to sex, right? We're saying that 16 year olds, 17 year olds, you're not old enough to decide that you want to have sex, but you, you're old enough to decide who should be the president, right? You can evaluate all these political platforms and decide who you want to vote for, but we're not going to let you decide to have sex. That doesn't make any sense. What about contracts? You know, if you're under 18, you can't sign a contract. You have to have an adult sign your contract, right? If you're, you know, a 16-year-old child star and you're in a movie, you're a guardian, right? Unless you've been emancipated, unless you're an emancipated minor, which is very rare, you need an adult. You can't get a credit card, Right. When you're under 18, you can't get a credit card. You're so irresponsible. We won't let you have a credit card. But, oh, yeah, we'll let you vote. Right. You can't get married when you're under 18. You need your parents permission to do that. Right. Well, because you're not you don't you don't you don't have the level of maturity to make that decision. Well, you don't have the level of maturity to vote either. 
right? Uh, look, I mean, we treat, if you're 16, you commit a crime, you go to juvie, right? In most cases, you're not going to a regular prison. We protect minors. And once you, you know, anything that you do wrong before the age of 18, when you turn 18, that record is sealed, right? All the, well, if you committed something, you don't have that record. It's, it's, it's sealed, right? Because you, you were a minor. So there are a lot of things we, we recognize that, okay, you're children until you're 18. Why do we want children to vote? Children should not be voting, right? And in fact, I pointed this out uh, on my, the podcast when I talked about it before. Think about it when the voting age was originally 21, when the Constitution first started. You know, the average kid who went to school only graduated the eighth grade. And a lot of people didn't even make it to eighth grade, but pretty much eighth grade was about it, right? Yeah, there were some people who went to high school and college, but that was a small, tiny fraction of the population. Most people were done with school, formal education, when they were 13. So by the time they were 21, they'd been working for eight years, eight years, right? Some of these guys were already married at 21. They already had kids, right? You know, but so you've been in the workforce for eight years. Why is it important that you be out in the real world and work before you vote? Well, so you have some idea about what stuff costs. So when some politician says they're going to give you something for nothing, you understand that there isn't a free lunch, that there's taxes that need to be paid, that government costs money. Right? So you want to have real world experience. You don't want to just have everything given to you because when you're a kid, your parents give you stuff. And now you look at your government like your parents, right? Oh, they're just going to give me stuff like my parents gave me stuff. You want to be out there in the real world and have some responsibility for earning the money yourself and recognizing that there are, you know, it does, stuff doesn't grow on trees, right? So you become more responsible once you're out there. But of course, not only did, you know, the various states require men to be 21. Now, they didn't let women vote back then, of course, because a lot of women, you know, they were they lived with their parents until they got married. They only left their parents' home after they got married and went to their husband's home. So they were being taken care of. They weren't in the real world in general, right? Of course, ah, were there some women that were the exception to the rule? Were there some women who had careers and stuff? Sure, of course they were, but they were in the minority. And when you're talking about criteria for voting, you're talking about averages uh, because the whole idea behind voting is not so everybody could vote. That was the furthest thing from the framers mind. They were afraid of everybody voting. That's why we're not a democracy. We're a republic. There are some democratic features, but the aim is good government, not everybody voting. And the way you get good government is make sure that most people don't vote because if everybody votes, you're guaranteed to have bad government. That's the problem because the majority is going to vote for bad government, right? The government that governs best governs least, right? You want small government. You want limited government. But the average guy wants free stuff. That's the problem. So how do you make sure that the people voting are responsible? Well, one way is you make sure that they're a certain age. But they had other things. They had property taxes. Oh, you had to own property. Property requires. have to have a stake in the game, right? Own some property. Then you can vote. You can pay a poll tax. You want to vote? Pay some money. At least we'll, only responsible people will be voting because they're paying to vote, right? Or let's have a literacy test. Take a test. Let's make sure that you could at least read before we let you vote, right? There are a lot of things that they did. Now there's no requirement. You turn 18, any moron can vote, right? Now they think this is supposedly progress, that we let any idiot vote. How is that progress? You know, we determine the outcome of our elections based on the idiot vote. You think I'm making this up? Again, I think I've said this before, but look at all the money that the candidates spend on television ads. Who are they advertising to? The idiots, right? Because most people who have any intelligence, and I'm even including the Democrats in there, right? The liberals, right? We don't need a campaign commercial to know who we're going to vote for, right? You go on the internet, you do a little research, you see who the candidates are, and you determine who best reflects your values and you vote for that person. What kind of moron makes a decision based on a commercial? Well, the people who are determining the elections, because what happens is the Democrats and the Republicans, they spend a fortune in the swing states trying to convince the morons to vote for them by ad buys, because that's what determines it. It's who is going to see a commercial and respond to a 30 second soundbite and vote for somebody based on that. A complete idiot. Yet that is who is determining the outcome of our elections. Yeah, this is enlightened. This is progress from where we were, you know, a couple hundred years ago. No, it's not progress. It's the opposite of progress. Now, of course, when I when I pointed this out on my website that I, you know, I don't like young people voting, um, 
the first thing I got attacked by all the millennials. Oh, oh yeah, boomer, right? You know, easy for you to say because you're, you know, you're old, right? You wouldn't, have, you wouldn't have said this when you were 18. Oh yes, I would because I did. When I was 18, I had conversations like this. I didn't think 18-year-olds should vote when I was 18, even though it meant that I couldn't vote. Like there are people who say, hey, why should there aren't there going to be some 18-year-olds that are responsible? Yes, there are. So it's like, why should you punish them? It's not a punishment. I don't consider not being able to vote as a punishment, right? It's a civic responsibility when you're able to vote. But I would rather not be able to vote and have good government than be able to vote and have bad government, right? So when I was 18, I was smart enough to know that most 18-year-olds were too dumb to vote for the candidate that I liked, right? So the fact that I could vote, my vote's going to be canceled out 100 times over by a bunch of morons. So I would rather keep them from voting, even if it means I can't vote either, right? Because that means the people who are voting are more responsible and are going to uh, elect better people. We're going to have better government. Everybody benefits from good government, whether you vote or not. And in fact, how many people don't even bother to vote now, right? Everybody can vote, but most people, we, I mean, we're lucky if we get 50% voter turnout. And again, I, I don't think high turnout is a good thing. I always want low turnout, right? Why? Because usually high turnout benefits the Democrats, Democrats. So I want low turnout, Right. Why would I want people to turn out who are going to vote in socialists? I don't want those people to vote. I want those people to stay home. Right. When people say, oh, everybody should vote. No. Why would you want everybody to vote? I mean, why would even the Democrat? Why would they want the Republican to come out and vote? What's the point? Right. To cancel out their vote. Uh, but I don't look at voting as my main right. My rights are my property, my life, my liberty, my freedom. Right. That's what I that's what I value. It's not being able to vote. Voting is a means to an end. The ends is good government. And we don't get good government by one man, one vote. We don't. We get people voting uh, uh, for, for stolen goods. They vote for somebody who promises to give them something that they took from somebody else. Right? An election is advanced auction on the sale of stolen goods. Now, of course, you know, if we really abided by the Constitution, if the government really stick to within its constitutional uh, you know, role, then it really wouldn't matter as much who votes or who we vote for because there would be very little the government could do. But unfortunately, the Constitution doesn't really protect us anymore. The government does whatever the hell it wants. Uh, and, and so the, the voting matters. But I do have some sympathy. There were people who were saying, well, you know, these old people, you know, they're on Social Security, right? They're going to vote for their Social Security benefits, which is true. I mean, that, that's part of the problem now. You've got all these people who have been bought and paid for because they're collecting a check from the government. And so you have a lot of older people uh, who, you know, obviously, if someone says, I'm going to cut Social Security, well, that there goes their political future. Uh, but Social Security needs to be cut. So, yes, I am a little bit sympathetic with uh, with that. But unfortunately, the, the way the young are voting, they're voting for Social Security, don't even realize uh, how much Social Security is destroying them because they're paying all the taxes. The young people don't even get it. Right. They, you know, and, and, you know, look at all the other things that hurt the young people the most, like the minimum wage law or these college subsidies. Right. They're getting clobbered with debt from student loans. That's a product of the left. They voted for this nonsense. They want a higher minimum wage. The minimum wage is a huge barrier to entry for, for people just trying to climb on the job ladder. Who are they? The young people who aren't on the ladder, who want to climb on, right? So they're voting. The young people are, are too ideological, right? At, when, when you're really young, you just don't know any better. You vote with your heart. Now, does that mean that's the case for all 18-year-olds or six? No. I mean, there are some 16-year-olds that are going to be far more responsible that would vote in a way that I, I thought was intelligent than a lot of adults. I mean, look, look at Bernie Sanders. I mean, he's lived his whole life and he's still a moron, right? I mean, he means well, but, he, you know, I mean, it's like there's an old saying, if you're not a liberal by the time you're 21, you don't have a heart. If you're not a conservative by the time you're 28, you don't have a head. And that's true. Well, here's Bernie Sanders. He's in his 70s and he still thinks with his heart. He never developed a brain, right? He never, he never learned. That's probably because he's never actually worked. He's never been in the real world. He's been in that bubble of Washington, D.C., and he doesn't know what's actually going on in the real economy, which is why we want to have people uh, to have more experience, to be higher in age. So if you go back to uh, the framers, people were not voting. Uh, they were 21, but they were getting out of school when they were 13. So what should the voting age be today? 30. 
makes a lot more sense. I mean, we have kids staying in school until their early 20s, right? Most people don't graduate college until they're 21, 22. And then a lot of people don't even get out then. It takes four or five years to get out of college. Then some of them go to grad school, right? A lot of people don't start working until their late 20s. So, you know, give them a little time to be in the workforce, to pay taxes, to experience regulations, right? And the unintended consequences. Make the voting age 30. What's wrong with that? Right? Look, what about the life expectancy? I mean, people, if you wait until 30 to vote, we have a much, you know, our life expectancy is far uh, greater now than it was a couple hundred years ago when the voting age was 21, right? And of course, we should also raise the age at which people can go to Congress. I mentioned this. We shouldn't let 25-year-olds go to Congress. You should have to be 35. We shouldn't let 30-year-olds be senators. You should have to be 40. And we shouldn't let 35-year-olds president. You got to be 45. Like, have some life experience. Do something first. Live in the real world. Accomplish something, right? And then maybe... Uh, you know, go to Washington, you know, for public service. Plus, we don't want these career politicians. When you let guys in the Congress starting at 25, when they've never actually had a real job, when they go right from school to Congress or something like that, or, a, you know, university, whatever they're done, or, you know, they're, they're never in the real world. They never have to live with the regulations that they write. They never have to deal with the unintended consequences that they create. So make sure that they come to Washington with the right perspective, that they live in reality so that they bring that understanding with them. So raise the age at which people can vote and raise the age uh, at which people can serve. And maybe we won't have all these terrible uh, programs, all these things that have been enacted simply to buy the votes of, of the uninformed. We'll